know me, my name is Jordan, and I pastor here at the Apprentice at Church 21. I'm very glad to, to join you this morning in the front. Um, this past Monday, as many of you know, was a, a general election here in Canada. Election seasons, they can be somewhat exciting, but they can also be somewhat exhausting. Um, thankfully, Comparatively, probably not as exhausting as our neighbors to the south of us. They have like a year-long process. Ours is just 40 days and nights, and it's like a, our time in the woods. Um, so elections, yeah, they can be exhausting. There's all that back and forth. There's the, the bickering and the, the pandering between parties and, and lofty promises given by different political leaders. And the integrity of the leaders, unfortunately, is always it's being it's been questioned across the board. Um, and have you noticed that actually during election season, we seem to get particularly uh, good at this. Everybody sort of becomes an, an expert in the, the excesses and the, the hypocrisies of their political opponent. Um, well, why? Because it's, it's a quick way we can, if we can knock them down, then we can uh, get a few steps up on our own position. Um, this was one of my, Looks like I'm having a problem with the microphone here. Is this the right one? Okay. We were trying to solve that beforehand. It's a frequency interference of some sort. Um, let me unwind this. There we are. Okay. All right. Back at it. Um, so we like to, to call out the excesses in our... Uh, political opponents. We like to um, point out the ways in which they've been uh, hypocritical because we can, we knock them down then we can prop ourselves up in return. And this was actually one of my, my favorites of the past election was this photo of uh, Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Her campaign put this photo up on their party platform page only to have been caught photoshopping the original photo, uh, which is the one you see there on the other side, where she has a uh, it's very difficult to see with the light, but she has a, a single-use cup in the original photo. Now, to be fair, and they have a party, uh, a, a policy in their party flat, a <laughs> mm, tongue twister, a policy in their party platform about uh, eliminating single-use uh, plastics. Um, now, to be fair, May said in this statement she, that she she wasn't aware that this photo had been altered. Um, and that she had nothing to hide. She said, I was completely shocked to find the party had photoshopped an image of me from last year's Sydney Street Market. And after all, um, that is a compostable cup in the original photo that she is holding. But I think what actually caught people's attention was that this is an image that the party's putting up, quite literally an image that the party is pursuing. And it just, it just smells, even if it's not, it just smells of hypocrisy. Um, now, I don't want to be too hard on um, Elizabeth May here. I mean, I could point out the, the things that Shear said about uh, his dual citizenship or Trudeau when he responded to a question about how he reduces plastics in his own family. Um, but these are all examples, if you think about it, they're all examples of somebody's integrity, a politician to be specific, their integrity being questioned. And I think it's really unfortunate how um, hypocrite and politician have almost 
come, become virtually synonymous for us if you think about it. But of course, if we're honest, it's not just politicians, right? They've, they've probably just become the sort of scapegoat, scapegoats of our own societal guilt. Scapegoats of our own societal guilt that we rage at, at people on Twitter for things that, well, we actually, we do them at home and in our own lives, right? We condemn rape culture, but then we go home and we consume violent pornography, right? And we know it, that we live in a, in a, in a deeply disintegrated culture. See, if integration, if integrity is having all the different parts of my life, the parts that people see and the parts that people don't see, comprehensive, cohesive, consistent as one, then disintegrity would be a sort of dishonesty, a sort of dishonesty of being. It's where we know what we should do, but we don't do it. We can't do it, or at least we lack the willpower, it seems, to do it. We're in a society of weak-willed people. Actually, Paul, the biblical author, talks about something like this in Romans chapter 7. In verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. Hate to do, I do. There's a sort of like ah to that. A gap between reality and then what we actually do. A gap between belief and our actions. And that gap we end up filling with, well, disappointment. Disappointment that, well, we call ourselves Christians, but then how do we actually look any different than that next person? How are we actually being salt and light every day in our city? We're disappointed that. We've tried to love our neighbor as ourselves, but then we want to rip their head off when they complain about the block party that we just threw. We aren't loving our neighbors every day. We're disappointed that we pursue generosity, that God is a generous God, I should say. We're disappointed that we profess a generous God, and yet we're hesitant to give our hearts or clammed up on themselves. We struggle to let Jesus into our everyday finances. We're disappointed that we believe in a God who is fully just and who is fully merciful and that we struggle then, yet we struggle to do mercy and to do justice every day. We're in a state of disappointment. We're not salt and light. We're not loving. We're not living lives characterized by mercy and justice. We're not the people that Christ calls us to be every day. Maybe you noticed, right, what I'm getting at, that these are all things that we've been talking about so far in this series, this series on everyday Jesus, getting Jesus involved in the nooks and crannies of everyday life, all the little bits and pieces that Jesus can actually impact and redeem those things, even the mundane things of life. But maybe this series, listening to it, its calls to action have, have left you in a state of, of disappointment. You recognize what John Ortberg said. He's a pastor in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. He says of the word disappointment this. He says, the word itself is apt. I am in a state of disappointment. I am missing the life that I was appointed by God to live. Missing the life that God has appointed you to live. 
that our lives are more characterized by the dominant culture around us. It's social pressure, the influences of our friends and peers than it is the life that God intentioned for us, a life in which we reflect his glory and his goodness outwards into the world. But this doesn't have to be. This is what you need to hear. This doesn't have to be. If you've become disappointed and given up and just sell and say, you know what, this is just how I am. The message of the gospel tells you that you can change. You can become a person so satisfied in the goodness of King Jesus and his sufficiency that your life actually produces the fruit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness that you can become a person so filled with the Spirit, pouring out His love in your heart, that you always bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, that this is actually possible. In other words, you can become so inwardly transformed that the outward personality and character and deeds of Jesus just flow right out of you. That this is the sort of new normal. The new normal for you is a Christ-like normal, a Christ-like response, a righteous response. And this is powerful. This is wild. By righteous, I mean that you actively love and do the will of God. You live rightly, not perfection. Never in this world will we see that, but actual, real, deep, inner transformation from the inward parts of your being working its way out to your whole life. That's actually possible. And you need to hear that. It's wild. I'll give you a trivial example. Somebody cuts you off in line. Instead of reacting with anger, your immediate new normal is patience. Gear it up a little bit. Somebody steals your car. Instead of being, oh my goodness, how am I going to get it with work today? I'm freaking out, anxiety. You can rest in the sovereignty of God in the situation and pursue justice without vengeance and retaliation a new normal. It's actually possible. Jesus can change how you deal with anxiety, how you deal with suffering, how you deal with success. It doesn't have to get to your head. It doesn't have to define you. With the Spirit's help, this is actually possible, but it requires making space in your everyday life for the Spirit to be at work. And this is our topic this morning, spiritual disciplines. What are spiritual disciplines? Practices of the mind and body intentionally done to pursue Christ and make every part of us more like Christ. Practices of the mind and body intentionally done to pursue Christ and make every part of us more like Christ. So this could be things like, you probably thought of it, fasting. Maybe you didn't think of this one, solitude, prayer, scripture memorization, celebrating, living in community, giving, the list goes on and on, right? But notice all these disciplines, they're not just like our default sort of thinking is practices like withdrawal, like prayer and solitude and fasting, but they're also practices of engagement like celebration and serving and community. The spirit is able to transform through both of this. They're all important. And this brings us to our text. Um, this text, Matthew chapter uh, six and the chapters actually around it are part of a larger sermon, a sermon called uh, given by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon all about the good life or the righteous life. And Jesus is here specifically speaking about the practice 
of righteousness, practicing the righteousness, our spiritual disciplines. So let's get into it. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness. So there you see it. Practicing your righteousness. And it's a beware. There's a warning involved in this. In speaking about the practice of righteousness, Jesus warns us about things what, you know, not to do. Beware of practicing your righteousness, he says, before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus warns us actually about the problem that we started out with. Disintegrity. Uh, hypocrisy. And he's talking about this. He's going to apply it to the most, uh, the three most common spiritual disciplines of the Jewish rabbis of the day. So you see Jesus talk about when you give in, in chapter 6 and verse 2, and then when you pray in verse 5, and when you fast in verse 15, giving, praying, and fasting. We're going to get more practical on these at the end, but this raises a question, a question that will begin to lead us towards through um, Jesus is saying, what does it look like to practice righteousness? What does it look like to practice these spiritual disciplines in such a way that doesn't bring uh, a pseudo-transformation, in such a way that doesn't bring a behavior modification, but actually brings real transformation? What way can we practice this that actually brings real transformation and not just hypocrisy? Um, and I think we all sort of have a sense of what this might like, look like. Um, we, we've all known uh, somebody that we would sort of put in this category, but Jesus isn't talking about that somebody. He's actually talking about you. He's actually talking about uh, me. You know, the other day I was standing in, a, in our kitchen, and our roommate Jacob was sitting at the kitchen table, and he just, he just looks over at me standing there, and he's like, oh, he sees this hoodie. He's like, oh, Jordan, uh, were you on the rowing team? Oh, well, I went to the tryout, I signed up, and then I went to the, the bookstore and I bought the hoodie to celebrate, but I never actually showed up for the practices. <laughs> I never, that's kind of it, you know, I never managed to get out to the training. I was like, oh man. Um, but it wasn't until later that day, it, it clicked on me that how many of us, right, we sign up and we wear the Christian hoodie, but we never actually show up to row. We never actually show up for the practices, right? We don't live it out. Dallas Willard, right, he talks about this a ton, he, this subject, and he, he says that this, this is the great omission in the great commission, that we've tried to take the discipline out of being a disciple. We tried to take the discipline out of being a disciple. And so um, the question that I would ask you is, do you wear a hypocrisy hoodie. Jesus gives us three ways to diagnose this. Three ways to diagnose if our spiritual disciplines are actually producing true transformation, or if it's just one of these, right? Uh, one is that we're preoccupied with our experience. Two is that we're becoming less approachable. And three, that we are growing weary. So I'll go through each of these three in turn. The first that we're preoccupied with experience. You see this warning given in verse 2 and 5 and 16. Verse 2, thus, Jesus says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before, before you. In other words, in your generosity, in your giving, you know, don't be tooting your own horn. <laughs> 
Sound no trumpet before you. As the hip hypocrites do in the synagogues. Uh, sorry, let me put that up on the screen. There you go. Um, <clears throat> when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus says they have received their reward for the giving that they've done in the praise that they have received uh, for others. One, one commentator on this says that um, they're not actually giving. They're not giving. They're actually buying the praise of the men around them with their generosity. In other words, they're preoccupied with their appearance. They're preoccupied with other people giving them praise and what they're doing. You see this again in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus is saying, whether in giving, whether in praying, whether in uh, fasting, what is he doing? He's calling it appearing, appearing spiritual, right? Appearing to be sort of righteous. We want other people to, you know, notice how much I gave here. Notice how, how, how well I structured that prayer I prayed. Look at how long I, I, I struggled through this fast. I mean, we want others to take note. One of my, um, my siblings and I, growing up, we used to call this actually giving the Sunday school answer. This is one sort of version of this. Does everybody know what giving the Sunday school answer is? <laughs> it's pretty common. It's, it's this thing where it doesn't really matter what question you've been asked. You want to appear spiritual, and so you just give the answer is Jesus, right? So... Dear Johnny, like, what has two wheels and sank in the Red Sea? And Johnny's thinking, well, it's probably, probably a chariot, but the answer is probably Jesus. <laughs> it sounds like a chariot, but it's probably Jesus. Um, maybe you've never had to deal with giving the Sunday school answer, that, getting that. But as you get older, nonetheless, that this tendency to, to appear spiritual, it doesn't go away. Um, recently, I was on the phone with a friend, and he was, you know, talking to me, and he asked me this. He's like, hey, man, is there anything I can, I can pray with you for? Is there anything I can pray with you for? And I was thinking, like, oh, um, not really. And my head is kind of blank. There isn't really anything I was really before the Lord. I wasn't really feeling dependent on God about anything at all. So I didn't really know what to say. Well, you can pray with me for this or that thing. So I just, well, okay, I'll just go ahead and not mention that, but I'll just throw, okay, you can pray for this. This comes to the top of my head, and you can pray for this. It comes to the top of my head. What was I doing, though? What was I doing when I was doing that? If I had integrity... What I actually should ask for prayer for was that I would be more dependent on God. Pray with me that I will become more dependent on God. But I was doing the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy hoodie thing, right? I was trying to cover it up. I was preoccupied. How is this friend seeing me? He doesn't see me. He's on the phone. But how is he thinking about me? How, am I appearing to be spiritual to him? Right? Struggling with my identity in Christ. Struggling with my security, the affirmation he says over me, right? Wanting affirmation, wanting the praise of my friend over the phone because I wasn't what? I wasn't securing God's praise and affirmation over me. Right? That was what was driving that. And so the question I ask you again, what is your hypocrisy hoodie? What are you doing trying to appear to be spiritual? Here's the thing. What Jesus is warning us about is that we 
often pursue spiritual disciplines as a sort of hoodie. We often pursue spiritual disciplines as a sort of hoodie, trying to make ourselves appear more spiritual than we really are. But spiritual disciplines, they're not actually meant to act like a thermometer on your relationship with God. They're not meant to act as a, as a sort of metric. They're not an end in and of themselves. They're a means, like I was saying, a means in the definition of devotion to God, to real relationship with, with the living God. You can't, you can't measure uh, your relationship with God based on stats. You can't measure your relationship with God based on, you know, how many times you pulled out your Bible this week. It just doesn't work like that. Just like I can't measure my relationship with my wife based on how long I spoke with her yesterday on the phone. It's really not about how long I spoke or even how many times. It's, it's about what we spoke about and why we spoke on the phone. That's, that's actually a much better signifier of our relationship, of real intimacy and depth. Uh, there. And so spiritual disciplines, then, they're not a way to prove uh, your spiritual health. In the end, they're not the end goal. <clears throat> John Ortberg says this, that spiritual disciplines are to life what drills are to a game. Spiritual disciplines are to life what drills are to a game. Um, I know we have some professional athletes in um, this room. Uh, they would be able to tell you more than they would, you know, I would, that... <laughs> Um, when you're weak at a move, what you need to do is you need to practice and practice. And if you're still weak, you need to practice again. You do the same drills again and again and again so that when it comes time to play the game, you've actually restructured your habit. You're able to do it well. You've sort of made a new normal with your muscles, right? And so spiritual disciplines are, are like the drills in the game of life. We need to train our mind to, to meditate on the, the truths of Scripture, to be renewed by it, to be listening to what the Spirit has to say to us so that when we come across real situations in our everyday, we're able to respond with our new normal, with, with truth and, and with grace. But this is the warning, right? It's so possible to just fill your life up with so many drills. I think this is what Jesus is getting. You can just fill your life up with drills that you never actually get into the game. Fill your life up with drills. It's possible to just wear this hypocrisy hoodie trying to be spiritual, but not actually, not actually be pursuing God, not actually doing it out of love for God, not actually being changed into his character. Oh, man, and so how do we, how do we come up against that? How do, we, how do we combat that? If spiritual disciplines are about pursuing the presence of God, um, what do we do? It comes down to hungering after him. I, I, think, I think if I was to really, really mm, get at it, I would ask this question. Do you have a holy discontentment? Do you have a holy discontentment? What do I mean by this? Are you at once, are you wrestling with the reality of your sin, the reality of the disintegration in you that I was speaking about earlier, the reality of your own hypocrisy, and the reality of God's justice, his rightful justice and wrath towards that? Are you discontent with that? And then at the same time, on the other hand, are you grasping the reality of God's goodness towards you? that he is slow to anger and rich and abounding in mercy and love, and he's enacted, he's, he's done that for you on the cross of Christ and extended his holiness to you if you receive him, holiness. And so you do grasp those twin things together. Spiritual disciplines can draw you into that. 
at once a discontentment and at once a, a trust in the holiness of God. And that creates a sort of hunger in you, a hunger and dissatisfaction at what you're hungry for more and then you receive the satisfaction of God, his sufficiency over you. And then you go again, you want more, you go deeper. This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what produces true and real repentance. This is what I want for you. I want you to be hungry for more of God. Because deep satisfaction, if we're getting back to the original warning, deep satisfaction is the only thing for you to let go of seeking affirmation in others. Deep satisfaction in God. And so Jesus warns us about being preoccupied with appearance, but he also gives a second way to diagnose if your spiritual disciplines are not producing true transformation. This is our second point, that they are making you less approachable. You see this warning given in verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What does this mean? What does this mean? Don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Does this mean that when you give, you just sort of don't pay attention to it, that you know, close your eyes, thrust your hand into your wallet, whatever you pull out, that's for God? <laughs> no. No, this is not, this is not what it's talking about. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not <laughs> Jesus was saying earlier, right, don't do it for affirmation from others. Now he's saying it, don't more or less, not, not even do it for affirmation of others, more or less do it for affirmation of yourself. Don't do it to pat yourself on the back, to make yourself feel good about yourself, right? Because that's just you in it for yourself. You're just, you're not buying, you know, other people's praise. You're just buying your own praise. That's just pride, right? And that'll harden your heart. That'll make you high and sort of high and dry. Right? You think you're in the, while you're doing this, of course, you think you're doing it to be righteous. You know, look how much I gave. Look how kind and generous of a person I was. I'm so virtuous. I'm so faithful. I'm so devout in carrying out this discipline. 10%, week after week, whatever it is. Right? But our tendency in doing this is what? Is, oh, I'm so devout as we're doing it. Well, why aren't they so devout? Don't they, look how hard I'm trying to get through this spiritual discipline. Going on over there, right? It's like when Homer Simpson, Lee Strobel likes to quote this, but Homer Simpson, he hadn't seen his Christian fundamentalist neighbors in a while, um, and they come home, and so he goes over into the backyard. So, hey, uh, haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. Where have you been? And they answer, we've been away at Bible camp learning how to become more judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jesus is also pointing out this same danger, right? That we can use our spiritual disciplines to, to stoke our own pride, to become arrogant, judgmental, turned into ourselves. They come sort of uh, daily checkbox that we fulfill. And instead of becoming more virtuous, we actually become less. And hearts like that, they become harder and higher, less approachable. And if this is the case for you, note that your practice of righteousness has actually undermined the very purpose the disciplines, like, like I said, they're for pursuing Christ. Spiritual disciplines are for pursuing Christ, for making you more like him, for reforming your character to become more like his character, for making you like Christ, making your character more Christ-like. We see this in 1 Timothy 4 and 7. Train yourself for godliness, it says. For while bodily training is of some value, 
Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The value of training your life for godliness. The value of training your life for godliness. And what is the present promise, or the promise it holds for the present life? Hebrews 12 and verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seemed painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Spiritual disciplines reform our character to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness, love and joy and peace, what I mentioned earlier. And so that shouldn't make us, if rightly pursued, less approachable, but more approachable. An inside-out transformation, taking on the character of Christ. And that's the kind of transformation I want. That's the kind of transformation I want for you present you mature in Christ. But here's the tricky part. I cannot achieve this transformation by my own efforts. I can't do it. By now, this should be clear, right? Because if, if I can use a good like spiritual disciplines and actually pervert that to become a way in which I become more hypocritical and less approachable, then it's clear that the problem is me, right? It's a very deep problem with me. And if the problem is me, then the solution to the problem of me can't be me. It's got to come from outside of myself. I need a power that can actually work at the inward structure of my heart and begin to reward it, reorder it. And that's, that's a power, and that's an ability that Jesus says that he is able to bring to you and I. That he is the true rescuer who comes from outside of you and me. Right? No power can change the deepest motivations in your and my heart. But this is what Jesus promises to be. In the, in the end, spiritual disciplines then, they're not our savior. Jesus is our savior. The disciplines point back to him. And so let, let the bread on this table remind you that Jesus' body was broken. His body was disintegrated so that you could become integrated, have full perfection integrity in him. See, unlike us, there was no pride in him. There was no pretension in Jesus. He never pursued or was preoccupied with his appearance. No, no. And because of that, because of that perfection, he can change you. He is the only rightful one who is able to do that. And because he gave his life and death, which is what that cup represents, and didn't stay dead but rose again in life, he can, he can extend that to you by the power of the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. You too can have that power transforming you in your life. That is the good news of what the gospel is all about. So do you have a hard heart? If that's something you know you have, come to Jesus because he can soften your heart. He can actually rework that hardness and make it soft by his presence, by his goodness, that life of humility. You can be clothed in it, scripture says. And yet, despite all of this, 
despite this goodness, despite this true message that I just told you. We can say, yes, yes, I believe in the love that God has shown me in Jesus. Yes, yes, I, I believe in the humility that Jesus had on my behalf. Many of us continue to struggle. Many of us continue to drift. We're disappointed. We seem to be saying the same. And some of us actually just learn to accept it. We just say, well, this is just the way I am. This is just, I've been this way for a long time. When it comes to things like reading or prayer or hearing from the Spirit, we don't enjoy those anymore. We don't engage in those anymore. Jesus said, if you're following me at this point, without me, and this is what the gospel is all about, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And that's the first thing you need to hear. But the second thing you need to hear is what Dallas Willard is also quick. He's point, he points this out very quickly. He says, the reverse is true. If you do nothing, you will do it without Jesus. If you do nothing, you will do it without Jesus. That's the second thing we need to hear. He adds that we have a problem today in evangelical circles that we're not only saved by grace, we're paralyzed by it. So you can't just continue to, to drift along and expect that oh, one day God's just going to change me. One day something's going to happen. See, that's settling for less than what Jesus has won for you on the cross. But some of us, we say, okay, we're not going to drift. I'm going to start trying. I'm not, I don't want to drift anymore. I'm going to try. But Jesus, in the spiritual distance, he's not calling us to try harder. He's calling us to train wiser. What do I mean? Well, think about it like any discipline. Athletics, as an example, right? If, if I really wanted to run an Ironman tomorrow, it doesn't matter. Like, I could try as hard as I want. I'm going to get up in the morning. I go out, and I start out. There's no way. There is no way I'll be able to run the Ironman. It doesn't matter how hard I try. If I don't train wisely, it's not possible. And this is sort of a way of thinking about what the spiritual disciplines are about. See, I think we tend to over-experientialize our transformation. We over-experientialize. What do I mean by that? I think a lot of people have this idea, when it comes to transformation of us, that just one day God's just sort of going to magically change them. They're just going to be going along, and then suddenly, like, boom, they have this experience, and that's just it. They're just going to be different. Their character will have been changed by God. But I know that's not always the case. I mean, the reality is that there's a lot of people in this room who are struggling with ongoing sin in their life. There's things that they know are holding them back from time with Christ. And you might be thinking, well, I just, I wish I had more willpower. I wish I just had more self-control. I, if I just had that, I, I would just be able to kick this, be able to break this habit. But what I'm, I'm saying is I want to invite you from trying to wise training. Practicing the spiritual disciplines are all about activities that train your heart and mind. Letting the gospel work into your heart and mind. But maybe you're wondering this then. 
If it's the Spirit who does the work, like Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. If, if it's the Spirit that does the work, then why do we have to put in the work of spiritual disciplines? Why do we have to put in the work of spiritual disciplines if the Spirit does the work? Well, I think the best analogy that we can get from this is that through spiritual disciplines, we set up the sails. <laughs> through spiritual disciplines, we set up the sails, but it's the Spirit that moves us like wind. Jesus talks about the Spirit being like a wind that blows where it wills, and you hear the sound, but you don't know from where it's coming or where it's going. And in contrast to that, I actually think we think more of our lives like that, of a, of a motorboat, right? Something that we have control over. We set the direction, put throttle down, and away we go, right? But the reality with Jesus is quite different. A number of years ago, my brother bought a catamaran. And I don't remember if this is the first time we put it on the water. I think it was. We, we popped it in in the Lake of Two Mountains. And it was quite a cool little boat. And it was a, we picked a beautiful day. Probably actually a day that was too nice because there wasn't really any wind. Um, so for about two hours, we just drifted along. We didn't really have any control. And then finally the wind did come. Finally a big gust of wind actually came and we weren't really paying attention. It actually blew the mast right over and flipped the catamaran so the mast was stuck down right underwater, completely upside down. We were stuck. And I think sometimes God is like this, right? Sometimes he needs to turn our lives upside down in order to get our attention. That we're trying to take our lives in a direction that he doesn't want to take us and in a gust of severe mercy, he has to turn us around, right upside down. And that day we were stuck out on the water for several hours. And you can know that Jesus, like those firemen were who came to rescue us, is always willing to rescue us. <laughs> we needed to be rescued that day, right? Now, had my brother and I been good sailors, this probably wouldn't have happened, right? We wouldn't have been able to... to you know, read the weather, you know, the sky or the water and say, have a sense of what the wind was going to do that day. We would have had a sort of discernment about that. And spiritual disciplines, they allow us to discern and to respond, I want to say, to fresh winds of the Spirit in our lives. Spiritual disciplines allow us to discern and respond to fresh winds of the Spirit in our lives. See, when it comes to sailing, there's a sort of unease to it, right? There's an unease in, in knowing that, well, you can't just put the throttle forward. It's the wind that powers the boat. You're not really in control in the same way. God can turn your life upside down. There's an unease. But at the same time, there's an ease to it that you don't actually power the boat, right? You put up the sails of your will. And he moves you by the power of his spirit. And that's always better than the directions that you want to take yourself, that you want to motor yourself. And so this is why we put in the work of spiritual disciplines. They're not in opposition to gospel change. Rather, rightly motivated, they can restructure your heart and mind to make you more approachable, not less like Jesus warned. And finally, Jesus gives us a third way to diagnose if your spiritual disciplines are not producing true uh, transformation, and that is that they're, you, you are growing weary in them. You see this in verse 7. 
When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So, so far we've seen spiritual disciplines uh, pursued for the affirmation of others, pursued for our own self-affirmation, and now we see spiritual disciplines pursued to sort of earn God's affirmation. Don't heap up empty words and phrases. Jesus is not impressed by the length of your prayer. Jesus is not impressed by the types of words you use in your prayer. Jesus doesn't want to hear what, what you think he wants to hear. He actually wants to hear from you. He actually wants to hear what you have to say to him in integrity. And so it's foolish to think, Jesus is saying, we can try and manipulate, we can try and control God with our prayers or with our fasting or whatever spiritual discipline we're pursuing because it's, they're not spiritual formulas, right? They're spiritual disciplines. They're not, in other words, a way to earn favor with God. Now, what might be an indicator that we might be doing this is that, like Jesus is saying, we're becoming weary of them. We're, they're starting to seem like a burden to us, a sort of another task that you need to accomplish. Um, if you grew up in a moralistic or a, a, a legalistic church setting, you know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to this. From a very young age, I was, it was drilled into my mind to read your Bible and to pray every day. And there's something good and right about that. I'm not, don't hear me beating up on reading your Bible and praying. You, it's essential for communication with God. But, but here's the problem is that when you're pursuing it for the wrong reasons, what happens is it can become quite wearying. So if I wasn't, if I hadn't read my Bible that day, I would just feel guilty. I would just feel like, oh, I'm such a failure. I'm just dreading the whole process, the whole time with God. And that's not the way it should be. That's not the way that spiritual disciplines are meant to function at all. And interestingly enough, I think the modern response to this predicament would be, okay, well, just quit, right? Just, just stop it. You know, you're not being an authentic individual. You need to, to just cut this off and only do things that are authentic, only do things that, you know, you feel like doing that are spontaneous to you. And so we, 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 we cut out spiritual disciplines because we're like, they're not authentic to me. They're old. They're dead to me. And we seek lived experiences instead. But the reality is that God doesn't work this way. Right? He wants us to seek him for him, not to earn his affection, not to earn his approval. And so I think we need to be reminded that the Father sees us through the lens of his son Jesus, to whom he says, in you I am well pleased. The Father's affirmation, when you know and love Jesus, you've received his affirmation over you. That's part of the gospel. He is well pleased with you. And Jesus says, when it comes to your prayer, your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. So even if you don't feel like practicing the spiritual disciplines, even if you don't feel like reading your Bible or spending time with God, there's no need to impress him. You can be honest with him. Tell God that you don't have that desire. Ask him to change your will in you. Because spiritual disciplines, they don't have to be wearing and unpleasant. They can actually be life-giving. You can actually have joy in it. But I don't want you to miss that. I want to give you, I want to get very practical, as practical as I can here as we, as we wrap up. 
<clears throat> a few months ago, I mentioned to you that I came to this realization that, well, well I thought of myself as, as, a, as a realist. The people who were closest to me were honest with me. That it was actually more of just a cynic, a very turned-in-on-myself sort of person, that I was quick to let situations, I was quick to let uh, circumstances uh, steal the joy that God had intended me to experience, that I was a, a sort of Grinch, there was a sort of cloud about me, that I, that I wasn't, in other words, reflecting the joy that Jesus had won for me at the cross. And so practically what I'm telling you is that the first thing I had to realize was that I didn't need to base my character on what I thought was just a personality trait. I didn't need to base my character on what I thought was a personality trait, that I actually had a problem and that this, this was something that the gospel, it was possible to change. It was possible to change. I had a problem and it was possible for the gospel to change me. And so I repented, I asked God for help. And then two was that, well what? I couldn't just try and be joyful, be like, ha, you know, like it just, doesn't work. Right? You just can't force these kinds of things. I can't just try and be joyful. I actually had to engage in a process of training my mind, my heart, my body in celebration, the spiritual discipline of celebration. It's a, it's a real thing. And so that discipline involved taking note of the things that I'm thankful for, being intentional about that. Yes, it meant like, you know, popping a cork at certain times, right? It meant prioritizing a, a party, Right? It, it, it meant taking notice of how the light shone through that tree to make the leaves light up in a fiery red and saying, thank you, God. Of taking note how my little baby daughter smiles and giggles and saying, thank you, God. And what you find, unlike, unlike the false joys of hell, right, where you need more and more of them to have less and less satisfaction. The true joy of heaven doesn't follow this law of diminishing returns, but is exponentially greater and greater. So lesser and lesser things bring you more and more joy as you thank God for them. Wow. The spiritual discipline of celebration. What does the Holy Spirit want to be doing in you? Ask him. The Father knows what you have need before you even ask him. The gospel is good news because it can actually change you. So once you've identified what it is that you need to change, what practice, the mind or body, is it that can begin to instill the gospel deeply into the dark recesses of your soul? You're not all going to have the same problem as me. You're not all going to be struggling to recognize the joy that God has given in life. Maybe it's meditating on the word. Maybe it's memorizing scripture. Maybe you're so self-absorbed that you actually just need to get out and serve. Maybe you've become so enamored by the idols or the gods of this world that you actually need to cut them off and take a fast from them. All the spiritual disciplines are important. One of the, what I want to, I would want to emphasize a few um, in thinking about where our church is at, though. Where we are at as a society and where we are at um, in a particular place and time, that we live in a society in where uh, productivity and busyness are idolized. We live in a society where there is so much messaging that is vying for your attention, so much 
ideas and thoughts and articles and conversations and advertising it that, that they're selling you false gods. And so I would plead with you, be hungry for the truth. Be hungry for what God actually has to say over you. Dig deeply into scripture. Meditate on the truth of scripture and actually allow it to restructure the way that you see and interact in this world. Allow it to reshape you instead of allowing the culture to be the one that shapes you. But I'll bring this to a close by giving a final application. And it's actually the application that Jesus gives throughout all of this. It was so, it was so in my face that I actually missed it until this morning. <laughs> um, so if it comes out a bit disjointed, that's why. But maybe this is the application that Jesus gives here in the text. Maybe you're one of those people who is so addicted to the approval and affirmation of others that you're stuck. And you're, you're listening to everything I'm saying to you. Jesus is talking about, you know, having this desire to be seen. You have this desire to be seen. What does Jesus have to say to you in this situation? Well, that's in verse 17. He says this. And you're giving your prayer, your fasting. What does he say to do what? Do them in secret. As your Father, who is in secret, will reward you. And so this is actually a practice. This is a spiritual discipline called the practice of secrecy. And this is a practice in which you engage in good deeds, good deeds like giving or fasting or praying and so on. You engage in these good deeds, but you do them in secrecy. You do them in such a way that you hope nobody finds out about it. You do them in such a way in which you're intentionally discreet about it. Well, why? Because our hearts are so prone to look for affirmation in others. We're so prone to try and af find affirmation in ourselves. We want to hear that coin in the coffer ring, as it were. We want to see that brick on a building that has our name on it because we were you know, generous in giving it. Now, spiritual maturity, it doesn't, it doesn't mean right, that that's wrong in and of itself. But it means I don't need to pat myself on the back when I've done something right. Right? Spiritual maturity means I no longer need that sort of self-affirmation. I no longer need that affirmation of others. I actually have a new normal that I'm living out of. It's just plain obvious to me that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That God has so restructured my heart in that way that it's become full. And so the, the discipline of secrecy is not some sort of new regulation you need to follow. Right? Jesus did pray congregationally with his disciples. There are times in scripture in which the amount that was needed for a project is given publicly in a sense. But if you know your heart has become so addicted to the approval and affirmation of others, practicing this can set you free. So practically I would say to you, join an affirmation anonymous right? This is an AA for you. Intentionally engage in works of services or practices in which you hope no one else will ever find out that you did that. And that will give you the space in secrecy. Your father who is in secret sees you and gives you the space to actually receive the affirmation of God over you and let all that be, let, let that alone be what you need. Does that make sense?
And so you can be free. You can be free from affirmation anonymous, <laughs> from needing people's affirmation over you. You can take off that hypocrisy hoodie, and it's the power of the gospel that is able to do that. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied. I think this is what we need to hear. And so I'm going to move into a time of response for us. If you bow your heads and pray with me, Lord, I ask that you would need us in this moment. I ask, Lord, that if the desire of our hearts is to be affirmed and seen by others, if this is the addiction in our lives, that you would break that by the power of your spirit. Would we engage with you in disciplines that free our mind and body to be servants to you and your righteousness? Would you change our hearts? Would you make us insatiably hungry for you, God? Would you pour out your spirit afresh in us? Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray, God, that you would meet us right now. Lord, that in this silence, that you would meet us in the secret place. Spirit of the living God, come down. Move among your people. Make hearts come alive. Free us from the addiction of other people's approval or the addiction of ourselves in Jesus' name. Lord, we only want you. We only want your voice to be speaking and praising over us. It is your approval we long for. Help us to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. Satisfy our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray this, amen.